God shows up. Then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind. Now, two things to notice. First, in the first two chapters, the narrator called him Yahweh. All throughout Job and the friend's speeches, they only called him Elohim and El Shaddai. They never used the personal name of Yahweh. But now the narrator comes back and says, now Yahweh spoke. El Shaddai, Elohim are titles. They can be referred to many other gods. Many other gods are called Elohim and El Shaddai. But there's only one being in the universe that's called Yahweh, and that is Yahweh. And that's his personal name. And that name communicates absolute sovereignty, but it also communicates I am a relational, personal God who makes covenants with people. And the reason that he's now called Yahweh is because this entire time, Job sees him as this distant God who is just punishing him for no good reason. And then God shows up and gets intimately, conversationally, relationally involved in Job's life. And the narrator's saying, this is Yahweh. Yahweh's the God. He might have waited a while. He might have waited a little bit longer than you wanted him to. But eventually he will show up. Just like if you're in real need, and it takes your friend in California a long time to get there to you, eventually they will get to you and be by your side when you're suffering. And so Yahweh shows up. The second thing you need to understand, he shows up in the whirlwind. And I've given you a bunch of verses in the footnote. But every single time you see the word whirlwind or storm in the Bible, it's always judgment. It's the wrath and anger and the judgment of God. And though Job is righteous and can be commended for that, he still has said a lot of bad things about God. And God is not happy with that. And he's going to deal with them. And so he says this, Who is this that darkens my counsels without, with words without knowledge? You darken my counsel. I am light. And only evil resides in the darkness. Meaning the things that you've said, Job, are evil and sinister and hide in the darkness. You are like a serpent. Now, he's not condemning his lack of righteousness. He's condemning his bad theology to condemn God. This is sanctification. This is not God condemning him and saying, you're a sinner that deserves to go to hell. This is, you have bad theology, let's get this sanctified. But I'm still angry. And then he says this, without knowledge. And here's a question you would ask yourself. Why would the Bible spend 37 chapters with bad wisdom? All right, you're supposed to read the Bible and you're supposed to think, this is good advice for my life. This is the wisdom of God. But for 37 chapters, you listen to basically five idiots spout their wisdom that's completely wrong the entire time, and they go back and forth in all their self-confidence, and you're like, why would God? I mean, can't he just give us two chapters and we get the point? I mean, why waste so much of the Bible with just bad wisdom? I mean, he even says words without knowledge. This is not wisdom, you ding-dongs. But why would God give them 37 chapters of dense poetry that you're like, oh my gosh, already we get it, and they're just fools? Why would he do that? Exactly. He's exposing our pontification. When we spout our wisdom, and we say all these things, and we just go on and on and on and on, and we have no idea that we're a fool. And maybe other people don't realize we're a fool. And what he's hoping to do is if you just kind of look in the mirror really quick and walk away, you may not see the imperfections. But if you sit there and stare for a long time, we can all eventually find them. Now, I'm not recommending that, and that's not good. I mean, that's an image American thing, but that's the example I have. And so what God is doing is, remember the Bible is sometimes like a mirror. 
and he's shoving the mirror in your face and he's not letting you walk away. And hopefully as you read it and read it and read it and they say it again and again in different ways and different perspectives, you'll begin to realize, oh, that's what I sound like. And he's trying to expose that you are not wise because the only true wisdom comes from God. And so in the end, they all think they're wise, but only God has the right thing. So he says, I will question you and you will inform me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you possess understanding. Who set its measurements, if you know, or who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its bases set, or what laid the cornerstone? When the morning stars sang in chorus, and the sons of God shouted for joy, who shut up the sea with doors? And then God basically goes through this chapter, and he just goes over and over and over again. Who put the stars in the place? Who named them all? Who knows why the wind goes this way? Who knows why the sea flows this way? And he goes through all the cosmos, both in the outer space, down into nature, and down to the animals. Even National Geographic is like, we have no idea why the jackrabbit is doing that. (laughs) (laughs) And God goes through all of this stuff. First, let's talk about what he's not saying. He's not saying, I'm God, you're not, shut up. I've heard sermons and read commentaries like that. And at first you're like, oh yeah, that's totally what he's saying, because that sounds really angry, and that totally makes sense. But then you realize, wait a minute, would a loving, compassionate God really say that to somebody who's crying out in pain and suffering? No. But he is saying a little bit, and what he's saying is this. Job, do you understand how the world operates and how complicated it is? I'm not saying I'm God and you're not, so just shut up. But I am saying... This world is huge, and the world is complicated. I mean, we don't even understand why holes in your sinuses are at the top rather at the bottom. We don't even know whether cats see black and white or color, and we change our minds every year. The best that we've ever gotten to duplicating the eyeball is a video camera. There's so much in this world that you don't understand. You don't understand the complexity of the way the world is designed, let alone the complexities of the sin and the evil in the world that's messing it all up, let alone how to correct it and fix it and get it all in the right place again. How can you tell me that I'm running things wrong when you don't even understand why the jackrabbit's doing it? You don't even understand how the eyeball works. You don't even understand why we have wisdom teeth. You're so ignorant in just the biology, and maybe somebody out there does, but the last time I checked, nobody knows why we have wisdom teeth. But still, the point is we're so ignorant in so many things of why this is working, that kind of stuff. There's so many things in the universe. We're now realizing the sun doesn't even like go in us. That sun actually does move. And we're realizing that we're not even in a circle. It's more of elliptical. And we're realizing the elliptical doesn't actually go on the same elliptical track when we are on the earth. It actually is making flower petals and actually making elliptical, elliptical after elliptical around in a big circle like a flower over like 50 or 100 years. And what more are we going to discover one day? And how much more do we not know? And God is basically saying this world is so complicated and so beyond your finite understanding and just the way it's designed, let alone throwing evil and injustice into the picture. How can you question me in the way that I'm doing things when you don't even know how to keep your own life together? I mean, many of us can't even balance our own checkbook or be good stewards of our own money or even understand how to program the VCR. And now we've moved on to other things like the iPhone. And you're like, 
You're questioning whether I'm actually running this world right or not? Who do you think you are? And it's not, I'm God, you're not, shut up. It's just understand, I do understand this, and you don't. And you therefore have no right to question me. Does that make sense? And that's basically what he's saying. Job does respond. So chapter 40, verse 1, Yahweh answered Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Do you actually have the courage now to truly question me? Let the person accuses God give him an answer. Then Job answered Yahweh, Indeed, I am completely unworthy. How could I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth to silence myself. I have spoken once, but I cannot answer twice, but I say no more. Now at this point, Job realizes, Oh crap, you're so right. I am scared out of my mind and totally intimidated by you. I mean, if God appeared to you in a whirlwind of fire and lightning and shooting out of it and comes barreling down to you and has a voice that even when the Israelites heard it at Mount Sinai, they're like, we can't handle it anymore. And he's angry with you. That would be absolutely freaky. I mean, you would be peeing your pants and everything else that you didn't even know was in there. And he's freaked out. But notice that he never repents. He gets what God is saying, that God is so much bigger than him. And he realizes that he should shut up. But he also says, but I'm not going to say anything. He doesn't repent. He doesn't recant. He does not take back his accusation against God. And that's why we get the next chapter. Because God's like, okay, now you've, I've got you in the right place of humility. But we're still not at repentance. And so he pushes further. Verse 6, when Yahweh answered Job from the whirlwind, get ready for a difficult task like a man. You man, I'm a God. I will question you and you will inform me. Would you indeed annul my justice? Would you declare me guilty so that you might be right? Do you have an arm as powerful as God's? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and excellency. Clothe yourself with glory and honor. Scatter abroad the abundance of your anger. Look at every proud man and bring him down low. Look at every proud man and abase him. Crush the wicked on the spot. Hide them in the dust together. Imprison them in the grave. And then I myself will acknowledge you that your own right hand can save you. You still are not willing to repent? Okay. Then this is what you're going to do. Job, you come up here. You clothe yourself in the whirlwind of lightning and fire and all the power and all the glory of the universe. You make the light of all the universe shine out of you and come down on people. And then you strike every wicked person down dead and destroy all evil and get rid of it. And if your own right hand can save you from your suffering and your evil and save everyone else, then I'll acknowledge that you are actually the great Savior that does not need me. If you still think I'm running this world wrong, then you get up on the cross and you conquer the devil. He's not condemning Job for his lack of loyalty. He's condemning Job for his self-righteous arrogance. And that's what he's dealing with. He's basically saying you can't. Now notice the entire time that Job was complaining. He was always complaining that this isn't right, that this is happening to me, that evil should be punished. But he never talked about the innocent people. He never talked about defending anybody else. And God says, can you even save yourself? Let alone anybody else? In fact, this entire time, you haven't really been concerned about anybody else's suffering. You've only been concerned about yours. And that's kind of eye-opening because usually that's what we are, right? 
There's a lot of suffering going in the world that a lot of people ignore, but the minute we suffer, then we complain, and our complaint is usually just our suffering and not other people's suffering. So then he gives two examples, the behemoth and Leviathan. Now, many people have misunderstood these people, animals. First, they said, oh, this is the, the hippopotamus and the, the crocodile. Really? The leg is the size of a cedar? I've never seen a hippopotamus that big. The, the Leviathan like fills the entire sea, not literally, but I've never seen a crocodile like that. And when you really read the descriptions of this animal, this is like a little kid's exorbitant imagination, hippopotamus and crocodile. It's not evidence of dinosaurs either. I totally believe in dinosaurs. I really do lean toward the idea that dinosaurs didn't go extinct until much after humanity came into the picture. But that's a whole other conversation. But God's not like, one day there's going to be atheists that are going to argue that there's no dinosaurs at the same time as humans. So, Job, you don't get any of that right now, but I'm going to put a whole chapter in there about that just so that those atheists will have something, or those, those uh, Christians will have something to refute the atheists with. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. In the ancient context, these are cosmic chaos creatures. These are the creatures that live on the peripheral of creation. They're scary, freaky animals that you would never want to come encounter. They are the dragon in a mythological sense. They are even the crocodile on a small sense. And they're the animals that God created. Therefore, they're good. They're not evil. But they also wreak havoc. They're the part of creation that's not ordered. They're good. They're created by God. They're not bad. They're not evil. But if you went face to face with you, them, they would mess you up. Like the wind. The wind is not good. Sorry, the wind is not evil. It's created by God. But if you went face to face with a hurricane, it will mess you up. And so this is not some evil, satanic, devil thing. It's not just a hippopotamus or a crocodile for the sake of an animal. It is those scary things in nature that we can't control and they bring chaos. The animals that we're afraid to face because they will mess our lives up. We would not want to bring a wild lion into our house. We would not want to bring a behemoth and a leviathan in our house. It's the scary hurricanes and tornadoes that we're afraid to face because they will mess our lives up. They're not evil and bad. It's not like the hurricane's like, I'm going to destroy them, and I'm from Satan. But it's just the world is still in somewhat disorder because sin is wreaking havoc, and the world's fallen. And so what God is saying is that these are good creatures. They're created by me, and I rule over them. But they represent chaos. They represent disorder. They represent the things in creation that are scary and freaky and mess you up. And I can deal with them. So he comes to the behemoth. And the first thing he says about the behemoth is this. Look at the behemoth which made, chapter 40, verse 15. I made you. It eats grass like an ox. Look at its strength and its loins, its power and muscles and its belly. I made its tail like a cedar, its sinews, its bones and tribes. He says, just like you, Job, is the first and the greatest of my works. What he's doing with this behemoth, if you really look at all the descriptions, he's comparing it to Job. He's saying, Job, you're like the behemoth. You're the one that I created. You're the one that I admire. You're the one that I built everything for. But you need to be like the behemoth like this. And notice that everything he describes the behemoth has nothing to do with look at how awesome the behemoth is. Notice that it's look at how stable it is. 
when the raging waters come and hit the behemoth, does it move? No. Its feet are like cedars, unmovable. Its tail is sturdy and stable. When the raging waters come hitting by, it's like nothing is hitting it. Nothing is touching. It doesn't rock. It doesn't think, oh my gosh, I'm going to trip and fall and go in the water and drown. It doesn't think it's going to come over and overtake me. It just sits there and eats its grass like nothing's happening because the waters are nothing compared to him. And what God is basically saying is be like the behemoth. When the chaos of the world comes slamming into you, Job, then you are to be steady and confident and sure-footed in who I am and how I'm taking care of you. Trust me. Build your house on the rock. That's what he's saying. Be like the behemoth. When you think of large brontosauruses, you think of, wow, that thing is unmovable. It could, you feel like a storm could hit it and it wouldn't even rock over. And God is saying, that's what you should be like. The wise man built his house on a rock and when the storm came, the rock did not budge and the house did not fall down. This is the ancient Near Eastern version of that. When the storm came and slammed against the behemoth, it did not move. It didn't even notice it. Be like that, Job, and your confidence and your trust in me. Don't let it touch you. And then he comes to Leviathan. And Leviathan, he says in chapter 41, verse 1, Can you pull in the Leviathan with a hook and tie it down with a tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord in its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Now, all throughout this, the pronouns are going to change to the first person, And they're basically saying, can you do this, and you do this, and you do this. Now he's actually challenging Job, are you able to defeat the Leviathan? In this case, he's switching and saying, I am like the Leviathan. I am unconquerable. You cannot tie me down and make me obey you. You cannot put me on a leash and control me and get me to do what you want with your little girls. How dare you question me? How dare you challenge me? How dare you think that you can bring me down and put me in my place? Because the Leviathan, you can't even handle the Leviathan, let alone me. Know your proper place. And so what he says of the behemoth is be stable and confident in God like the behemoth is. And don't you dare challenge me and condemn me in order to justify yourself. Because you can't even handle the Leviathan. How in the world are you going to handle me? I'm untamable. God is not saying these animals need to be tamed. He's not saying that these animals need to be conquered. What he's saying is that these animals are untamable. And you should be like the behemoth, steady and sure and unmovable. And you cannot tame me and conquer me and question me and try to destroy me like you cannot destroy the Leviathan. And so in the end, what Job is, what God is saying is this. I'm not giving you the reason why you suffer. And the world is not being run with justice. I run the world with wisdom. And when the storms come, You should just rest in me as the most unmovable, unshakable, unconquerable, untamable God in the entire universe and rest in my arms as a good God and know that nothing can ultimately crush you and destroy you and take your soul and kill it because you're in me. Trust me. Rest in me. You do not have all your answers, all your questions answered. You don't know why this is happening. You don't understand the meaning of everything in your life, but I do, and I love you, and I have a reputation, and I am all-powerful. Just trust that I have your good intentions in mind, and trust that I can handle everything, because my reputation is good. 
And that's basically what God is calling him to. Walton says this, God's justice portrayed as an accepted fact, but it's also indiscernible. Technically, one should not claim that God is just. That appears to make him accountable to external systems. It is also less than meaningful statement. If we can never really have sufficient information to demonstrate that God is acting justly, instead we should say that justice emanates from the person of God. At the same time, however, we recognize that the justice that emanates from him does not stamp itself indelibly on the world. God is just, but the world doesn't always take that justice because it's fallen. It's sinful. Consequently, though we affirm that justice is found in him, we cannot base our expectations in life or our understanding of how the world runs on that premise. The book, therefore, does not contest God's justice, but removes it completely from the table of discussion. And it focuses intentions elsewhere. God does not endow the world with justice, though he is able to act justly. He rules wisely. Now, I'm going to close up. Ultimately, in the end, when he shows up, he then turns on the friends. He agrees with Elihu that Job was definitely self-righteous. Then he turns on the three friends and says, You are ignorant people who went after my righteous servant. And he says, Job is going to make sacrifices for you, and maybe I'll forgive you. But he really means I will forgive you. So Job goes and makes sacrifices, and this is where it's different. In the beginning, you might think that Job was making sacrifices because it said, just in case maybe his kids had committed a wrong. But this time, he's making sacrifices for his friends because God commanded him to do it to show the forgiveness and the compassion of God. You see the difference? The first time he's saying, maybe there's sin that God will be angry about, and I need to make sacrifices to get rid of it so that God doesn't punish me. That's the implication. Now, there's definitely sin in the friend's life, and God is saying, I want to forgive you, and I want to show you my compassion. Job makes sacrifices for them so that I can forgive them. And that's completely different. You're not going to God saying, I don't want to be struck down dead, so I'm going to make sacrifices to make him happy. Or I don't want to be condemned by him, so I'm going to work in this homeless shelter. Or I don't want him to be angry with me, so I'm going to make sure that I have good language and not slander people. What you want is, I screwed up God, and now I'm going to come to you because I know you're a forgiving and compassionate God. There's a completely different attitude there. And that's where Job is different now. Job is now acting as a high priest, not to cover an imaginary sin, but he's now acting as high priest to pour out forgiveness and compassion and mercy on his friends. And that's completely different. Do you come to God because you're afraid of what he'll do to you? Or do you come to God because you can boldly and confidently go to the throne of God, knowing you'll receive compassion and mercy from a God who is tempted in all points of the scale and yet without sin. And he will be with you to vindicate you and help you get through life because he is your friend. He is your trailblazer. He is the death slayer. He is your companion. And Job has switched. And then God gives everything back. Why? Because it's a retribution principle. The Satan was right, right? No. Because did Job deserve to get everything back? No, not after that self-righteous accusation. But God gave it back to him because God is a good father who wants to bless his child. 
And he gives them even more daughters and even more sons. And basically what he's saying is this. In the beginning of the book, did Job deserve to suffer? No, but he did. Did Job deserve to be blessed at the end of the book? Heck no, but he was. Because God rules through wisdom. And sometimes the retribution principle is not always right because God doesn't want to produce just righteous people who do it because they want to be rewarded. But sometimes he does bless you for no reason because he's a good God that wants to give you good gifts. And when he does and when he doesn't, we don't know because every, all the meaning under the sun is hevel to us. But he does and he rules with wisdom and he can control the universe in a way that we can't because he understands in a way we can't and he can deal with the evil in a way that we can't and he's a good God that has a good reputation and we trust and rest in him that his wisdom is good. And that's what gives us comfort. And think about it. Understanding things doesn't really make the suffering go away. Even if God told you this is why you're suffering, it would still suck. But if God said, I'm a good God who loves you and I can handle all this suffering, I'm going to walk through it with you. In fact, I went to the cross before you and I know what it's like to go through pain. I know what it's like to be rejected. I know what it's like to be persecuted. And I'm going to be right there with you holding your hand and I'm going to, make you, I'm going to suffer with you and one day I will deal with it all. Is that comforting? Yes. My daughters, when they come to me and they're hurting, they don't come to me to take the hurt away. They come to me to know if daddy cares. When they come to me and they run to me and they're, Daddy, Daddy, I got hurt. Or, Daddy, Daddy, she hurt me. Or, Daddy, Daddy, at school, they said these bad things about me. They don't want me necessarily to always fix it. I can't go to school and beat up Nathan. (laughs) I can't take their wound away. I can't magically heal their wound. And what I find is, with my daughters, they come to me. And if I say, why are you crying? Then that destroys them. But when they come to me, Daddy, Daddy, I got hurt. And I've noticed that when I hug them and embrace them and say, I love you, I'm so sorry, do you want me to kiss it? And all of a sudden that helps. And then I'm like, do you want to stay here with me or go play? And they're like, I'm going to go play. And it's like (laughs) instantaneous stop crying. Why? I didn't take their pain away. I didn't explain why, you see, the reason this happens. Because the universe was working in such a way and the earth was tilted in a way. And you tripped on this and the concrete came to you. Concrete's hard. I didn't explain all that. God's got a bigger plan for you with this scrape from the concrete. All I said was, I care, I'm here, and I'll suffer with you. And that is everything. And this is one of the other reasons that God meant by faith like a child. Do not get distracted by the big philosophical questions that don't really help you in your suffering. Focus on the relational God that can handle and knows all things, who actually cares for you and wants to hold you in his arms and suffer with you and help you get through it. And that is way more comforting and way more relational. Now, a final note. I'll give you an example of how God is not always just in the way that he rules the world, even though he is just. I said that wrong. He doesn't always implement justice all the time, but he's wise. Our pastor just did the compassionate father, or also known as the prodigal son, this last Sunday. That son squanders the wealth, and he comes back. Is it just for the father to forgive him and bring him back? After prostitution and sleeping with sex slave trade people and squandering all the money and saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want your money right now. Is it really just for the God to just overlook that completely and just immediately sacrifice the fat and cow and just bring him back in the family without any kind of rebuke or punishment or consequences? Not really. But was it the wise thing? If he would have smashed that son 
but that really renewed the relationship. He knew that son at that moment didn't need a swift kick to the rear end. He knew that kid needed compassion. There's an example of how God didn't implement justice in that moment, but it was wise. Think about it with your own kids. Sometimes you're just like, they're going to have to learn the hard way. Let them smack their... I've tried to tell them a million times, don't do that, don't do that. And this time I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to let them just smack the ground. I'm going to let them get hurt. And, and you know, they never do it again after that. Was that a just thing? Not really. But was it a wise thing? Yeah. Think about a person who's arrogant and prideful, okay? And, and, or somebody who has everything. And, and, and you need to be broken. It's not exactly just that they get hit by a bus and thrown into the hospital. But was it wise? Did it break them and bring them to a place where I need God? You know that some people, the only time they cry out to God is when they cry out. Because they've been broken. And you say, that wasn't really, that was kind of a little harsh to make him get hit by a bus, God, though. Yeah, but God knew that only getting hit by a bus would actually break him enough to bring him to God. And in that sense, that's wise. Now, these are really minor examples because I'm a finite minor person in the universe. But if we can understand these minor examples, then how much more are there bigger, more complex examples of God's wisdom in the world? And this is where you just have to say, once again, the true man or woman of integrity, the one who truly has a true Deuteronomic relationship with God, does not serve God because they're afraid of being punished. They don't serve God because they're wanting rewards. They serve God because he's a good, loving, relational God who created everything, and I'm only here because of him. All the blessings that I do have, we tend to focus on all the bad things and what we don't have, not all the mini gifts that we still have in the process, are because of him. The God that pursued me, even when I was a scumbag, shaking my fist at him and sinning and saying things like this, and the God who died on the cross for me to get me into heaven and put the Holy Spirit in me, even though I'm a scumbag, that I say, I'm going to rest in you. I don't understand everything. I don't know why this is happening. I may never understand why this is happening. But your track record is so good. And I know ultimately you're a wise, even though it doesn't always make sense. And so I'm going to trust and rest in you. And I'm going to be unmovable when the world slams against me like the behemoth. That's the disposition that God wants. And that's the ultimate answer to the book of Job. God's policies are good because he's not running the world with justice. He's running the world with wisdom. And what is our response to that kind of a God? To rest in him and just trust that he is a good, sovereign, loving God. And that is comforting, not the scientific, philosophical answers. There's a time and a place for them, but not when we're suffering. And that's why the Bible also says, grieve with those who grieve and laugh with those who laugh. The best thing you can do at a funeral is not try to explain things, not try to answer the questions, but to put your head on their shoulder and your arms around them and cry with them because that's all they really want at that moment. Yahweh, you are an awesome God. You're a phenomenal God. We thank you that you have, are a wise God and that you've woven wisdom in the fabric of your universe. And ultimately, wisdom is what drives and keeps our universe going. 
Yet there are times that we notice that is not always just. And there's not always a reason or a meaning to everything that we can see. But that's because of sin. That's because of our own choices and our own brokenness, not because of your failure. And so I pray that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of perplex, in the midst of I don't understand, that you would give us the ability to humbly just crawl into your arms and trust you as our good, loving God who will take care of you. Because ultimately, you are the wisest God in the entire universe that will one day make all things right again. In Jesus' name, amen.